What up, guys? We're back with two parts of this unbelievable conversation with my girl, Dr. Ramani, where she's sharing with us her cheat sheet, if you will, of all her best strategies and tactics for dealing with the relentless manipulation and games that a narcissist will play. Now, the odds are you've encountered a narcissist before in your life, and whether it's someone in the workplace or someone in your home, whether it's family or your significant other, each encounter with them can make you question your worth ignore the warning signs and even give up your power to them. But my girl Dr. Ramani is here to help us learn how to effectively deal with the charm and lack of empathy of a narcissist, why it's so important to listen to your body's response, which is something we sometimes ignore, and her three steps to narcissist resistance so that you can finally break free from their abuse. The reality is, guys, is that the narcissist will never change. Just like a leopard, it doesn't change its spots. So it's up to you to make a change and take your power back so you can live the life you want without losing your confidence or losing who you are. I'm your host, Lisa Billiou, and this is Women of Impact. Let's dive in right now. And guys, if you're listening to this, the one thing I do ask is, would you mind just dropping a rate and a review? You have no idea how much this means to me, the podcast, the growth and spreading the word of Women of Impact. I know, I know, all of us podcasters ask for rating review, but I'm telling you, if you're listening to this right now, if this episode is bringing you value, the value that you can bring back is by rating and review, and that's how it actually gets spread. So my homie, let's get to number one on the podcast list with your help right now, drop in a rate and review. Thank you. And now let's get to the episode. It's so interesting, the power piece about that people think they would rather leave because you feel like you're taking your power back. Um, And I would assume then in uh, having the narcissist leave the relationship, it's almost like serving their part of the another characteristic that you talk about is their need for dominance and their need, you know, for the power. So they feel good about it because they feel like they have the dominance and power. And so you're Mm -hmm. almost giving them what they want so they never have to come back and... Correct. Well, I'll tell you an interesting way to think about it. I'm always amazed, Lisa, at how much people don't understand how divorces work. I really am. Like, you know, when you rent a car, there's like, you read the things like, okay, if I go through a toll, I have to pay this much. The nice rental car people give you that contract. You can even read it ahead of time. Like, okay, got it, got it, got it. Nobody reads that fine print on marriage. They don't. And I think it's because we don't really give them the fine print on marriage. And as a result, Most people don't understand how a divorce works. They don't understand community property. They don't understand prenuptial agreements. They don't understand custody. They don't understand any of it, okay? Least of all the narcissists who are all so entitled that somehow they don't think that the divorce laws of their state apply to them. Mm -hmm. So this is something I've seen happen many times. The narcissistic person gets married. They don't have a prenuptial agreement. They find new supply. They get caught. Relationship falls apart, okay? And the narcissist is like, to hell with it. I'm out. I'm leaving. They're thinking they've got their new supply and all of that. And then they read the fine print. The divorce attorney says, okay, well, the value of your house is this, and that's half of this, and the retirement account this, and the person's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me I have to give this person I was married to all this money? And... The attorney's like, yeah, like that's how that's it's how the divorce works in most states. We're in California. I can only speak. That's mm-hmm. the only laws I've ever, you know, had to. My clients have gone through. So yeah, you're gonna have to pay this money. And the narcissistic person's like, well, that's not fair. 
And the guy's like, you married this person, right? The attorney's like, you married this person. You signed a piece of paper. You married them. This is what you agreed to. I didn't agree to this. Yeah, you did when you married them. It's a legal contract, okay? And then you know what the narcissists often do? They go back. Because of that. Because they don't want to do that. So then they'll do things like try to figure out new ways to be shady in the marriage but don't, won't want to leave it. Or they'll try to engage in a post-nuptial agreement. So they don't have, but they, like, this is why, you know, it's like, it, it's drawing blood from a stone in a divorce because they're very oppositional. So it may very well be that a, a partner, a spouse, that they encouraged to leave the workplace, the narcissistic person took over the finances, that partner or spouse might've supported them in their business, may have raised kids, whatever. Now they're saying, well, I don't want to give them anything. That's classical, but they'll come back in if they don't want to give up the money. They just don't think that these rules apply to them. But then people get confused when they come back. And I have to say, I've seen this happen at least a half dozen times where the narcissistic person, for all their smarts, didn't really pay attention to what marriage really meant. And as the higher wage earner, that they were going to be in some financial obligation to this person that they were married to. These are long marriages, 20, 30 years plus. Mm. And... It's the, the person foolishly, sadly, let them back in because they thought they really wanted to come back after all. They would tell them, we built this life together. I'll change, I'll change. But it, when we're in therapy together, I'd have to say, you know, it was really because they didn't want to give you that money. And they'll say, got that now. And, and then they have to almost replay this whole process twice. Oh. And then they reenact everything that we've spoken about in past episodes as well, where they're hoovering you and they're breadcrumbing you. I think I've heard it all. And then I'll hear about one more of these narcissistic divorces. And it's, and I, the way I explained it to one client is, you know, she said, I was married to this guy for whatever. And in one case it was like somewhere between 25 and 30 years. And that the hard part for her to get her head around was he would be okay with me being homeless. And I said, he would be one hundred percent okay with you being homeless. One hundred percent. That was a lot for her to swallow. Wow. Yeah, because you go from, all right, they don't really love me, but to have that type of ill will and mm-hmm. it's just it's not even ill will, Lisa. It's not caring. Um, I think not caring is worse than ill will. Interesting. Oh, tell mm-hmm. me it's the absolute disregard the the way we many of us might struggle with walking by most of us i'd like to think would struggle to walk by someone who was struggling who was really really having mm. a hard time even if we might have doubts on like how they got there and all that we're like i can't this person's suffering i have to i i, I care about other human beings i have no relationship to this person this is a person who was married to you who once stood in front of a group of people and proclaimed their love for you, who you may have raised kids with, whose families you've gotten to know, who doesn't care if you are unsafe. They don't care. And that concept of absorbing that somebody just doesn't care, the callousness of that, that has got to be one of the hardest things I've Mm. seen survivors grapple with. Yeah, I can only imagine. Because ill will in a way is more like, I want something, I want something bad to happen to you, right? It, it feels more revenge. Mm-hmm. And then you can almost see it as like, okay, they're mad, whatever. But the, I don't care what happens to you. Mm-hmm. That feels like a dismissiveness at the highest level. 
And that's really, really hard for people to get their heads around. But it's all part of that process of radical acceptance, which is really where the healing process begins. There's a quote in a song um, or a line in a song that goes something like, I would rather you hate me than you forget me. Yes. And that's, that's exactly that. Mm-hmm. We want to evoke feeling in people. Mm. And when the, as the narcissistic divorce goes through, people will say, I had no idea what this person was capable of. Mm. This is the first they're seeing the breath of it. You know, really it is that sense of you don't care. You, I mean, people said they didn't care that their kids would be living someplace dangerous. Mm -hmm. They didn't care that their kids' quality of education was going to drop. They didn't care. They were punishing everyone because of that oppositionality. I didn't get my, you can't have my stuff. It's like the kid holding all the mm-hmm. toys saying, you can, nobody can have any of my toys. I work for these toys with no concept that it was a partnership. It was a spouse keeping a life running that allowed this person to build what they built. No recognition of that whatsoever. All right. I've got another behavior that you say that's fascinating that I we haven't really touched on much. You kind of loosely did, but that um, narcissists have thin skin. Yes. Narcissistic people are very, very sensitive. They are interpersonally sensitive. They are, they react very strongly to any form of feedback or criticism. And again, if you think of the architecture of a narcissistic person, there's this deep insecurity with them. It's like a well of shame that is so, it's like capped off like an old oil well or something like that. And it's kept down. So it's unconscious for them. It's this chronic, mm, mm, that's always bubbling, bubbling. It's always this fighty fight part of them. That's there, There's an edginess to narcissistic people, right? And they probably even experience it internally but they don't know what it is. However, when somebody, it's almost like someone's giving you, they tell you something's gold, but you scratch your finger on it and you see it's just plain metal underneath. When anyone scratches their little gold leaf off the top and the the fact that they're just metal shows up, it brings up in them a strong series of reactions, but mostly it's panic. It's shame. It's a shame, a wave of shame coming up like, I'm being, I'm not perfect and someone's going to see it. They're going to, and then that shame results in rage. Mm. So then the rage means they're powerful, right? Ah, I'm more powerful than you. You're scared of me. But it's really because you brought out that, that thing. And I, I, and it is a, I think people, it's one of the, when people say, what are the red flags? That might be one of the most clear red flags there is. How does the person, Pearson's like, what, what? I've just met this person, known each other a few months. What can I look for? How do they respond to criticism or other forms of disappointment? So it could be the table's not ready at the restaurant. Um, they, uh, they had a workplace conflict. You give them feedback. Maybe a friend of yours makes a playful jibe about something, you know, that they're, and, and how do they react to that? If they react like in very disproportionate, rude, attacking way, pay attention to that. Because sometimes people say, well, I think they're just a little socially anxious because they're meeting new people. Or I was going to say, well, maybe they're just a little sensitive. But you, in your examples of the table versus, hey, you've said something that's hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. Two very mm-hmm. different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a that thin-skinned quality actually makes, is the one thing that makes narcissistic people dangerous. That it's, mm. 
In fact, in the research, they call it thin skin provocation. So these are the people, for example, we hear all these stories of these road ragers who will run someone off the road. That's that thin skinness in practice. They don't, they don't like that somebody mm. might have gotten in their way or told them no, or even, you know, given a gesture at them so they won't punish that person. Oh. And it's, it, it's a real driver for aggression. It's also, again, I mean, I've said, I think I've said this like eight times now already, but there's, there's so much confusion in it because especially if you see somebody that appears dominant, strong, and then you see that they're really sensitive, like it actually can seem um, a little confusing. Or to be honest, depending on the scenario, I may be like, look, they've got like a heart, they're sensitive. It's different kind of sensitive. So it's not like, oh, I'm hurt. You hurt my feelings. It's anger. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Let's say they're sensitive to something and it's uh, they show it in anger. That doesn't necessarily mean they're a narcissist because I assume no, that no, sensitivity no, 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 no. It doesn't. can lead to that type of 
uh, response in most a lot of people. The reason why I'm saying it is because sometimes I get angry when I'm when someone's like pressed a sensitive button, right. and my protective mechanism right. is to get angry, but right. actually it just comes from a source of insecurity. Correct. We might do that and say immediately say I was out of line. I am so sorry. It's none of us are perfect, right? The narcissistic people think they're perfect. None of us are perfect. If somebody pushes a pressure point, right, we may get very snappy. And, but the awareness, that self-reflective capacity that's lacking in narcissistic people for us to say, okay, that was not okay. And we reach out to the staffers or we reach out to the friend and say, I was out of line. You know, that was uncomfortable for me. Um, I am sorry that I, my reaction was, was out of, and, um, I hope you're okay. That's not something a narcissistic person would do. So that, that, to understand that, yes, yeah. we have those, but that thin skin, it's called again, thin skin provocation is this, it could be the smallest thing. It could be that you accidentally brush by them in a store and they turn around and start screaming at you. It could be, this is what I'm saying, road rage is a big part of this. It could be um, a little, little bit of feedback. And it's a, that even the smallest thing, smallest thing can set them off. But what happens though, is that ultimately becomes a tool of control because everyone's now afraid of them. So nobody creates a circumstance where they, so they don't get feedback. They don't get criticism. And this is how monsters get made because they get to sit in their bully pulpits. And if you think of some of the most narcissistic, like corporate, corporate leaders or political leaders, and you read about the people around them, you'll say, nobody would ever tell that person something they didn't want to hear. There is no way. So you can't, you can't govern that way. You can't lead that way mm -hmm. if you're never being told what's wrong. But if everyone's too afraid to do it, you can see how everything can come tumbling down under those circumstances. Could be very similar in a family. I mean, I've seen family systems where the, whoever was the narcissistic head of the family, because everyone was so afraid of their rage, would not give that person an ounce of feedback and wouldn't even tell them important things that probably would have been important for that person to know, but everyone was just too scared. Mm. Now, one of the character behaviors that I find um, very tricky um, is that you say they're incredibly charismatic. And so everything we've already said is almost like the negative, right? When they're irritable, when they do this, when they're, you know, won't let things go, dog with the bone. But the opposite sometimes can be even harder because it feels really good in the moment. So when someone um, is being incredibly charismatic, how do you know if it's, uh, if it's a part of their uh, mask that they're wearing? Or how do you know if it's genuine? And then when, if you start to spot that actually it's a mask, how would you uh, actually then respond to that if you see it in front of you? Most charismatic people are very performative. And in my experience, when I've talked to charismatic people and they've come off the stage, when they're no longer the center of attention, I don't feel like they're looking at me. I feel like they're looking through me. There's something very different in their gaze. And I can pick up in it right away. I can feel it in my body. And that's when I'm like, no, all that, all that stuff we saw on the stage, there's no there there. And I will, I will end, I'll end the interaction on my part. It's, nice, it's lovely to meet you and I'm out. Like I, I won't do it. But what about that rarest of things, the charismatic, charming person who's a decent human being? And maybe you don't have the gut intuition that you right, have because right. you've experienced everything you have. I would say the first thing is, 
are they capable of having a balanced conversation and listening? So in other words, does, does the conversation have to be all be all about them? Or are they able to ask a question about, about you? So to meet someone charming, charming and charismatic, they come off the stage, you're talking with them, and it's a real conversation. It's not them looking, sort of looking through the corner to what's the next best thing they need to get to. They track the conversation. You feel seen and heard. To the, to the alternate, there's somebody I met recently who is very charismatic, very successful, and beloved by millions and millions of people. Absolutely awful person absolutely awful, was asking me questions that were just rude. They were dismissive. They were, I wasn't being seen. I wasn't being heard. And I was being given the bums rush. And I'm thinking to myself, F you. I don't care if people think you invented fire. You do not have the right to behave that way. And I'll be frank with you. This is somebody who I know a lot of people like reading this person's work. I'm not referring people to this work because it felt like it was written by a relatively soulless person. And so it is, can they, that charming and charismatic person, be present with you, hear you, not be dismissive, not monopolize the conversation? That's the sort of thing to show genuine interest in you. And if they can do that, and you feel seen and heard, that's a good sign. And again, I'm not talking you meet a celebrity off a stage, and that's not the circumstance, because that wouldn't work. Obviously, they're going to be A thousand people. Yeah, yeah a thousand people all trying yeah. to clamoring. That's sure. not what I'm talking about. I'm really talking about someone you're meeting in a circumstance where it would be appropriate to slow down and have a conversation, and that they are attuned to you and hearing you, and it's not the them show. And having said all of everything we've just spoken about today, you actually in your book also then break down how to have narcissistic resistance. And so you've got three tips and it starts with become gaslit resistant. Right. So how do so you do that? So to become gaslight resistant is you have to give yourself permission to own your reality. Okay. And own reality in general. So that means listening to your body. Being plugged into what, what, what matters to you. So this will be the kind of thing. Let me give you an example. Once a person has been through a narcissistic gaslighted relationship, they lose all sense of, they don't even know what kind of, they don't even know what kind of dessert they like anymore. They don't even know if they like a dessert. They don't know if they're cold. They don't know if they're hungry. They, they've lost all that. Why? Because when they said those things in the narcissistic relationship, they say, you can't be hot. It's, 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 it's cold in here, or you can't be hungry. We just ate, or you don't like that kind of cake. You keep hearing that long enough. You're like, I don't know what I like. So one thing I'll tell people is get familiar with yourself. Who are you? What are you about? What do you like? Everything from what do you like on your pizza to what matters to you in the world to how do you want to spend a Saturday night? You know, there's all kinds of like actually journals out there that have those prompts, like get to know you kinds of, um, prompts. Do some of those because getting to know yourself is actually something we don't do a lot of. We, we are often overly shaped by the world outside of us. A few times a day, catch yourself and ask yourself, how do I feel right now? You might say like, my back hurts a little, or I feel good, or I feel a little off balance. Like that kind of allowing yourself to sort of have these moments of reality within yourself can make a big difference. The second thing is to know what gaslighting is. 
right? And that's its own process, right? To be gaslighted. It's not simply to be lied to or be told, I never said that or that never happened, though that's the first part of the gaslighting. Second part of the gaslighting is then to also be told there's something wrong with you or, you you know, you have memory problems or you're out to get me or something that's completely untrue and that makes, that destabilizes you because like, that's not true. And maybe I didn't remember it right. And then you start to believe that there's something wrong with you. Happens enough, you do believe that there's something wrong with you. So again, it's that sense of knowing what it is so that when it happens to you, you're very aware of what this person's doing. You don't even have to say to them, don't gaslight me. You can say, this person is gaslighting me, so I'm not engaging with this. It's really that I know what my reality is. The sky is blue. My skirt is black. Like you in even if no, no, it's actually green. Okay. And then you learn responses. Another way to become gaslight resistant is to learn responses. So when a person says, your skirt is green, I'd say, okay, that's interesting. I see it as black. You're having a different experience than me. I hear that. We're cool. Done. There's no, no you're out of your mind. It's black, green. I'm like, I, you think it's green. I'm not out of my mind. I see it as something different. Thanks. You don't say you're gaslighting me. You don't say stop that. You don't try to prove to them it's black. You're like you're having a different experience than me. We're cool. And I love that you didn't also just agree with them. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. It's got you. You're having a different, we're having different experiences here. Keep that in your back pocket because when someone's doing that, you say, we're having different experiences. A gaslighter is never going to say that to you. They're going to say, basically, my experience is the only experience. And you say, I guess this is different for us. I love that. You're having, we're having different Different experiences. experiences, Such a good. Because we'll say that to people. Like, you know, it's funny. It's the time of year everyone's talking movies, 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 right? And it's fascinating for me to hear this absolutely different takes. Mm. Speaking with someone just today, talking about a very popular film. And they asked, did you like it? I said, I actually really liked it. And they said, well, I hated it. Bobby? And um, <laughs> I knew it. And I they listed all the reasons. And they said, why did you like it? I said, well, you know, there's an interesting, interesting existential feminist message. But, you know, I said, but I hear you. And, and then the person had given me a long reason for why they didn't <laughs> like it. Our temptation is to get into a fight about why it was a great movie. Mm. But instead, if we can practice, like in this, this person wasn't trying to tell me you're wrong. At no point did they say Barbie is bad and you're dumb for thinking Mm. it's good. They never said that. But these opportunities become, but people have been overly gaslighted. It'll say, maybe I'm wrong for liking that movie. I like, maybe there's something wrong with me. No, you liked the movie. That's fine. They didn't like the movie. That's fine. If they start to tell you you're wrong, that's one step in through the gateway of being gaslighted. And then if they tell you there's something wrong with you for liking that movie, you've just been gaslighted. And say, I hear why you didn't like it. I liked it a lot. So you can acknowledge hearing them. And if they say you're dumb, say, and you know what you do? Just hold your ground. I liked it a lot. After a while, you do sound like a little simple, but that's okay. Because I'll I'll say, I liked it. And they'll say, only a dumb person would like it. I'm like, yeah, I liked it. (laughs) 
They got nowhere else to and go. And then they get very frustrated with me. Like, you're the dumbest person. I never want to go to the movies with you. I'm like, I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, after all that, it's like, I don't want to watch a movie with you. It's, it's interesting how you break that movie down because taking it out of like an emotional thing actually makes it really clear of how comical almost it is about how they try to change your mm -hmm. mind and when it's something like that's detached from your heart mm -hmm. it's actually a movie's easier yeah, yes, it's, e it's detached from yeah. yeah but when it's personal you've got all these reasonings and these upsets but it was like i like the movie like what are i gonna say but lisa that movie example a lot of people would have gotten into a fight over it they'd have fought for their movie mm -hmm. that's the oh, ego yeah. like no way best movie of the year best movie of the year you're on it no blah, 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 blah. but you're like yeah okay i liked it yeah it's a movie. Yeah. I happen to like it. All right. So now we've already built our gaslighting uh, resistance, which I love that you've just taught us. So then the second one that you say in order for us to build the narcissistic resistant, you know, blueprint, let's say, is listen to your inner critic. Yes. So the, in this book, you know, because I was, I, this, it's not you as focused on moderate narcissistic relationships. And it's important for me to make that distinction because there's a whole realm of very severe narcissistic relationships, more of what we'd see in the realm of malignant narcissism that are characterized by dynamics like coercive control and exploitation and intimidation, stuff that's scary and even dangerous, right? While when that happens, it's terrible. I was not going to be able to write one book that hit the whole spectrum mm. of experience because that's more, we're talking about safety, we're talking about protection. Sometimes we're even talking about legal and criminal issues. That's not this. This is the vast majority of people who will show up in one of my offices is this idea of the moderate narcissistic relationship. It's enough to really throw you off balance, to make you uncomfortable, to leave you feeling betrayed and sick, but it's not the terror. The people in these relationships are typically not experiencing violence or mm -hmm. things like that. Now, there are also mild narcissistic relationships, which are annoying and sort of stunted and ridiculous. It's like, it's a, it's a partner that will say like, no, no, like we have to get like, we have to take like a million pictures on our trip and post them all on Instagram. You're like, I just want to take a vacation, grow up, you know? And so it can feel, it can feel sort of vapid, cotton candy, silly, immature. It just doesn't feel like a person who's adulting. Again, that's not that harmful. It's annoying. This is harmful, but it's not dangerous. So they're going back to the side of the inner critic. The inner critic has, you know, some of its origins and other models that are very highly used and heavily used in therapy, like internal family systems work and, and even parts models like fragmentation theories around trauma and all of that. But this idea of the inner critic, if we take all of that and sort of turn it into something that people could understand outside of a therapist's room is that inner voice that's telling us like, oh my gosh, you're so dumb. Do you really think you could start a YouTube channel? Who would ever be dumb enough to watch you? That's the voice inside of you. And you're like, well, that's a mean voice. Where did that come from? That inner critic in some strange little way is trying to protect you. And what is it trying to protect you from? Is the idea that failure and harm and all these other things could come and it's equating all that. You take this chance and a terrible thing's going to come, may not go well, and then what? Right? And it, it's almost like your anxious friend saying, I don't know. I don't think you should go on this trip. It's kind of dangerous. It's icy roads. You want to tell your friend, like, I'm good. I got the right tires. Please let me go be myself. Your inner critic is actually trying to keep you safe.
That's what it's trying to do. But the problem is we see it as a voice inside of us telling us we're dumb, telling us we're foolish, telling us we're going to fail. And if we can, because it's a voice inside of us, maybe recognize where that came from Mm -hmm. and also what it's trying to do to protect us, right? Then instead of hearing it as a voice telling us we're damaged, we can hear it as a part of ourselves that's actually trying to keep us safe and receive it with compassion because that voice can often lead us to stop ourselves, right? And to say, you know, almost say, inner critic, I got you. Like, if I, if this doesn't go well, I'll be okay. But that inner critic can also be viewed as related to sort of an inner child inside of you, right? The child who's terrified because for the child who failed, it might've meant losing love. Every survivor of narcissistic relationships I've ever worked with will say things like, I am so dumb. I am the dumbest person. I do it all the time. I'm always talking to myself as though I'm stupid and I'm a failure and I'm a loser. That language comes out of me all the time, right? That was language I was using to almost get ahead of narcissistic abuse to protect myself. But then one day I had to catch myself and say, inside of me and guiding even that inner critic is that inner child. And so one day I grabbed a picture of myself when I was five years old and I said, go ahead, Rami, tell her she's stupid. I burst into tears. I'm like, oh my gosh, like maybe someone said that to her. I don't know. But I'm like, I can't tell my, I can't tell her she's stupid. She's a sweetie. And that shut it down a lot for me. I still do it from time to time. But that idea that I was telling that child is inside me is still trying to try things, feel safe, very scared, and likely silenced by narcissistic voices. When we can recognize that vulnerability exists within us, and instead of being mad at it and treating ourselves as damaged, to cherish that and say, had that five-year-old self of us been nourished and nurtured and cherished at that time, we would be in a very different place now, and it's never too late. But that understanding that the inner critic, those voices are trying to keep us safe, can help us then be less likely to believe the nonsense the narcissistic person is saying to us and instead realize like, oh, I see what you're doing. This has been, I've been, I've been here before mm-hmm. and, and I am not allowing this to happen again. But it's understanding the function. Sometimes this negative self-talk is really just to keep ourselves feeling, again, safe and in control in situations where we don't feel safe. At the time that inner critic voice developed, if you failed, it wouldn't have been okay. And that's where that voice really comes from. Oh, that's so strong. So strong. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then the last thing that we can do on building our resistance is to understand the sympathetic nervous system. Yes. So this relates to what I was just saying. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, submit. And all of these functions, these parts of us, how we respond to situations that we experience as threat are designed to feel, make us to to leave us feeling safe. The sympathetic nervous system was really, really designed as a an alarm system that was designed to detect actual threat and respond to it. Think of it as like a burglar alarm on your house kind of thing. But the burglar alarm goes off every time a leaf wags in the wind, right? So it's always going off. You're like, oh my gosh, this is costing me a fortune and this is ridiculous. And that's a little bit what an overactive sympathetic nervous system does. Now, for example, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, the sympathetic nervous system is completely thrown off because once we experience something like a trauma, we internalize that and the world feels more threatening. The same thing happens to people who are in long-term narcissistic relationships. Things like 
conflict become terrifying. Um, sharing of ourselves becomes terrifying. All these things that are actually normal things become scary because they were places of shame or humiliation or minimization or devaluation or gaslighting or whatever. So what happens over time is that, you know, we, people always use this term triggered. What it really means is that we have this physiological, physically held somatic reaction to certain stimuli in our environment. An example would be someone raising their voice. Maybe someone's raising their voice, not out of anger, but like, come on, you guys, come on. Like, this is a great idea. <laughs> and then someone in the room is starting to get trembly because what they heard was a raised voice, which might've been the voice of the narcissistic father, right? And they're having this, this sort of reaction within themselves that they're feeling it physically. And then what happens is we have these different kinds of sorts of sympathetic reactions and the fight reaction and some really interesting work here, most pointedly Janina Fisher's work here that, you know, the fight might literally, you take the fight, but sometimes the fight is anger. It's like, this is unfair. The sense of like, what the hell is happening? This is unfair. And when we feel things are unfair, we feel them physiologically. Our heart races, like we don't like that feeling. The freeze is when someone's coming at us and maybe saying things that create those old, familiar, sort of triggered feelings. In the freeze, we can't find the right word. We're stuck. We can't respond. A lot of people feel shame at those times saying, why did I just stand there like some kind of fool? I feel like an a-hole. I was just standing there and that not realizing that that was your nervous system. Then there is the, the flight, which is either to withdraw, to pull yourself out, to check out, to dissociate, right? So you're, you're again, once again, you're sort of pulled out. It's not so much that, that sort of stuckness as much as you just, woo, you go, you go out of there. Then there's the fawn. And we attempt to win the narcissist over, especially when they're really coming at us. Like we try to be what they want. Some people might even say that they felt like they were almost trying to be seductive with the narcissist just to get them to, just to please them. Because if you pleased them, they wouldn't be a threat. And then the submit response is like a person just gives in and capitulates and they can, it almost becomes like sort of depressed. They, they sort of lose their will. But all of these responses are safety responses that have gone awry. They've gone too far. And some of these responses like fawn and freeze, people will often feel shame about. The fight response, they'll feel like, well, I'm the one to blame, right? It, it brings you into this idea that you're somehow complicit. The thing that we have to remember, and, and Janina Fisher says this beautifully, is we have to be curious about these responses because as they're happening, when we stop and realize, what is this about? Why is this happening? And then to really realize that that predominant response has an ancient sort of origin for us, right? And it's all part of this idea of trying to feel safer at that time. But by understanding these responses in ourselves, instead of being angry, like, how could I have been so foolish and not spoken, is to say, ah, I was really, really being activated at that time. And I can, I understand what that response was about. If anything, it tells us more about the circumstance we're in, that this is an unsafe situation. And that's something I really try to get people to in these relationships. I need you to identify that this pattern it's not safe for you. Not safe as in you're going to die or safe, unsafe as in danger, but you, you no longer really feel comfortable in your body. And many survivors of narcissistic abuse will say, yeah, I never felt comfortable in my body around this person. Like I told myself the stories I needed to keep this relationship going, 
but I never kind of felt right. These are people who report GI problems, nervous system issues, heaviness in their chest, clenching of the throat, weakness in their limbs, tension in their limbs, headaches. They were carrying all of this in their bodies. And the, and the, when the threat would increase, they'd feel it in these other nervous system responses. But it's to recognize that these are all alarm signs that something isn't right. And many times our sympathetic nervous system tells us, it's like an early warning system. When I, when I, for me, I carry it in my throat. I carry clenching in my throat. And sometimes I feel a heaviness in my chest or a clench in my gut. When I start feeling those physiological signs when I'm with someone, I'm like, okay, something, I'm not good in my body here. Something's happening here. Let me pay attention. And, and then I'm a fawner. I'm very aware that fawning is my safety response. And I have felt shame about that. It's to catch myself when I'm doing that and say, slow down, sister. You don't feel safe right now. You know, so you might, you might do better than just to sort of think, give you, show yourself some grace, step back. You're just trying to feel safe here. So it's it's a way by understanding, basically your body is telling you about a red flag before you've even shaped the beginning of it in your mind. And what I think is so strong is you know those flags for yourself and it's going to be mm -hmm. different for everybody. Everyone. And Everyone. as you were saying, I was like, yeah, my face gets warm. Yeah, that's a common My one. heart starts racing yeah. and then my gut just mm -hmm. tenses like a knot. Mm -hmm. So if those three things for me happen, mm -hmm. I know that I'm having a response to something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell people, if you can, can get out of there for a minute. Get your, Breathing is huge on getting your, your nervous system reoriented. Using your breath, breathing grounding, sometimes just a hand to your chest, feeling your heartbeat, you know, feeling just counting the beats, bringing them down, orienting to your body. All of these things can help kind of bring you down from that and then recognize that you're responding to, again, often a long held threat in your body, but that may not even be happening here. It could simply be that person with that loud voice is actually really being enthusiastic. And, but the problem with the sympathetic nervous system responses, it almost blocks you from being able to take in what's really happening. Mm. You just aren't able to like take it in. You're just like, alarm, alarm, you're going to kill me. Versus like, what's happening here? And like, oh, I see it. And I also understand why I was triggered. Yeah. So in order to become narcissistic, resistant, um, it's to be resistant to gaslighting, to listen to your inner critic, and then understand your sympathetic nervous system. Tune into yourself. To, you know, your body is telling you, your body holds a lot of this. So listen to it. Guys, hit that subscribe button. This episode impact you as much as it did with me. Girl, where can we find you and your amazing book, It's Not You, and just the insane amount of content and beautiful work you're putting out in the, in the world? This is a book that was written from my heart and frankly, my nervous system to help people heal, to become more narcissist resistant, learning about discernment and all the rest of the other things we talk about. You can also find me on YouTube at Dr. Romani, on all socials at Dr. Romani. And we also have a healing program for people who are interested. You can go to my website, drromani.com, hear more about people, an entire community of thousands of people who work every day on healing from these relationships. It's a reminder that while this isn't easy, it's really possible.